Chapter Eight, Part Three of Shores of the Polar Sea: A Narrative of the Arctic Expedition of 1875-76. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss, Chapter Eight, Part Three. The great stratified masses of salt ice that lie grounded along the shores of the polar sea are nothing more than fragments broken from the edges of the perennial flows. We call them flowbergs in order to distinguish them from, and yet express their kinship to, icebergs. The latter and their parent glaciers belong to more southern regions. Partly because it was a conspicuous point to push on, for, before halting for lunch, the Floberg on Simonsia Island became a familiar landmark in the many trips of the supporting sledges across Black Cliff Bay, and the chill hour while tea was preparing was often spent in speculating on the enormous force required to push the huge square mass so high on shore. A day's march beyond the island and its Flobergs, we came to a spot where many traces of game had been seen in the autumn, but after a long search, while the sledges halted to take in a depot of pemmican, we only found one hair track, and it led down over the crest of an inaccessible cliff, so we returned to camp empty-handed. During the night we reflected that it was a pity to lose nine pounds of fresh meat without another effort, so in the morning, while the sledges were packed, we walked along the flows to a point, under where the tracks had been lost, and by careful searching the crest of the cliff with a telescope, the tracks were discovered and traced downwards, along narrow ledges and abrupt slopes, to a sheltered nook halfway down the cliff, that looked utterly inaccessible to anything but a bird. There, in her sanctuary, poor Pussy sat, in fancied security, till the rifle brought her tumbling downwards to the flows, just as the last sledge reached the spot. This solitary hare was the only fresh food procured by our northern sledge crews. From henceforth they were beyond the limits of game, and in this one condition our parties differed widely from those whose precedent they were attempting to follow. The longest journeys ever accomplished were made, by Sir Leopold McClintock and Leuton Meekham. The former obtained forty-six head of game, including eight reindeer and seven musk oxen, the latter no less than seventy-seven head, including nine deer and four oxen. Our party was now reduced to six sledges. The seventh returned as had been arranged, carrying with them a man who had been an invalid since the day after leaving the ship. From this point, the road lay due northward, over flows half a mile wide, with hedges of hummocks between them. The surface looked smooth enough, but it was only a crust over soft snow, and broke under one's weight into slabs most uncomfortable to travel over. Nothing can exceed the monotony of sledge travelling. Day after day the same routine is gone through, day after day the same endless ice is the only thing in sight. A dark stone projecting above the snow, on a cape we were approaching, was the only coloured thing in sight for two whole marches, 
and it had a most disagreeable fascination for our eyes. In order to compensate for this blankness of scenery, every man had been advised to decorate the back of his Holland overall with such devices as seemed good to him. Accordingly, the back view of our sledge cruise was an extraordinary spectacle. One man's back bore a large black anchor with the motto, Hold Fast. Another displayed a complicated hieroglyphic savoring of Freemasonry. Here was a locomotive engine carrying over a beautifully green sod, and on the next back a striking likeness of the Tichborn claimant bespoke the bearer's admiration for the distressed nobleman. Here again was an artistic effort which had cost its author many a week of painstaking execution, but neither he nor anyone else could tell what it was. Union jacks, twelve-ton guns, and highly mythical polar bears were of course common. These decorations were most useful in identifying the various men, no easy matter when all were dressed alike, and every face was swollen and blistered with sun and frost, and blackened with staring smoke. On 7th of April, some difference of temperature in the still air treated us to a display of mirage. Almost all day long, as we marched forwards, the conical mountains of Cape Joseph Henry raised themselves up in pale shadow against the sky, and spread out into great flat tablelands, spanning the valleys with bridges, and constantly flickering into new shapes. On the sixth day's march of the united northern and western parties from the ship, this sketch was outlined in pencil, while the sledges passed across a flow, little if at all, under one hundred and fifty feet in thickness. Like most heavy flows, its edges were piled with rubble ice, cemented and smoothed off with snowdrift, showing a perpendicular wall outside, but sloping inside to the general undulating surface. The easiest road lay right across it, and with the aid of picks a natural gap in its walls was soon converted into a practicable path. The united crews of the Bulldog and Marco Polo are hauling the latter sledge down through the gap, while the challengers and poppies have just reached the spot with the first of their sledges. On the seventh day's march we crossed a flow so much raised above its fellows that it got the name of the castle. Its surface was about an acre in extent, and judging from its height over the water, it could not be less than one hundred feet, perhaps one hundred and fifty, in thickness. It was walled in all round by lines of debris, piled upon its edges, and cemented together with snow, perpendicular outside, but sloping inwards, so that the inside looked like a vast saucer. The easiest road for the sledges lay right across it. Several breaches occurred in its walls, and with the aid of picks they were soon made practicable. A sketch made as the boats passed across represents a scene familiar to many of our sledge parties, for Castle Flow was subsequently crossed on no less than thirteen separate occasions. Sunlight amongst the ice is often very beautiful, but at the same time very inconvenient. It had already peeled our faces, now it attacked our eyes. Every crystal of snow reflected a miniature sun, and the path of the rays seemed literally sown with gems, topaz and sapphire generally, but here and there a ruby. Similar colors, but with a curious metallic luster, like oil and water, tinted the fleecy clouds overhead, 
and the sun itself was almost always surrounded by circles similar to those seen round the moon in winter but exquisitely rich and brilliant in rainbow hue color no painter could hope to produce the faintest resemblance to such effects the light was in fact altogether too bright for mortals and we could only face it with goggles on the gem-like gleams especially produced a quick pain in the back of the eye that considerably lessened their aesthetic effect the officers who have to travel well in advance and climb hummocks to find a road for the sledges cannot wear goggles continuously vapor from the eye freezes on the inside of the glass and it requires the keenest sight to detect differences of level and distance in the white blank of the prospect on our eighth day's journey a faint mist took away all shadow from the ice and though a man might be seen several hundred yards off it was quite impossible to tell whether the next step was up or down into a hole or against a hummock that day pioneering was done rather by touch than sight when the fog lifted we found ourselves close to cape joseph henry and next forenoon the depot left there in the autumn was transferred to the advancing sledges half a mile northward from the depot a bank of snow evidently the accumulation of ages sloped down from a small hill to the sea in one place a great slice of the bank had broken bodily from the mass above leaving a deep crevice this was bridged over and completely concealed except in two places where the roof had fallen in and exposed its perpendicular walls of green ice streaked with layers of earth and sand the bank was in fact a miniature discharging glacier the only one yet met with on this coast a few yards below the openings the bridge was strong enough to bear a heavily laden sledges of the western parties their course lay through the valley to the left for though the snow on shore was in many places soft and deep a short cut across the isthmus promised better travelling than the crush of floes round the cape the prospects of the northern party were less encouraging looking northward from the hill over the crevasse an icy chaos spread to the horizon mirage every now and then raised lines and flakes of distant pack into view but all as rough and rugged as the ice floes at our feet the detachments separated on eleventh of april we of the supporting sledges bade both good-bye with three cheers and watched them slowly wind out of sight amongst the hummocks the one to the westward the other poleward and as we retraced our steps on the return journey their one two three hall came faintly to us across the ice end of chapter eight part three